7, the book of Revelation, we read it verse 14 and read down through verse 19. And here, let me just say before we begin reading, the Lord gives us what I consider a sneak preview of what is about to take place. Or I liken these verses to something like a table of contents in the front part of a book. And so here the Lord gives us a sneak preview as he even cast our eyes and our thoughts all the way down to the very wind up of the events that are talked about in the book of Revelation. It even carries us to that time of the reign, the eternal reign of our Lord. It involves the matter of the judgment of God. It involves the matter of the reward of the saints. It deals with God's just judgment upon this earth. And so here, beginning at verse 14, we find these words saying, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly, or is coming. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats or on their thrones fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, or the ark of the covenant. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Now here we have come to chapter 11 and the latter part of that chapter, which deals with what is termed as the third woe. The third woe is coming quickly. As you go back in our studies, I remind you of what we have seen in chapter 10 as well as here in chapter 11. For beginning in chapter 10, if you have been with us in these studies, we have revealed to us in these two chapters the purpose of heaven the purpose of heaven as it relates to this earth and to many other related matters. Now there are three things that I want to call to your attention in relation to heaven's purpose. And we have already looked at two of them. First of all, we saw in chapter 10 the completion of the mystery, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 10. The second thing we saw, and we considered it last Sunday, and that was the coming of these two mysterious messengers. The coming of the two messengers as they come into the city of Jerusalem and begin to prophesy. And there, you remember the details of that, and I'll not uh, take time to review it. 
But also in this chapter, as we'll look at today, we have the crowning of the Messiah. The crowning of the Messiah. Let me just back up and say one or two things about it to bring you up to date. Here in verse 1 through 7 of chapter 10, you find the completion of the mystery of God. The mystery of God. In verse 1 and 3, if you'll look back in chapter 10, you'll find that verse 1, 2, and 3, our eyes are turned upon Jesus. Our eyes are turned upon Jesus. And rightly so. And might I add this. That all the troubles of this very present world that we have now, that we have ever had, or that this world will ever have stem from the fact that men have lost sight of Jesus. They have lost sight of Jesus. At this particular point in the tribulation period, you'll discover that men at this point have ruled out Christ altogether. That is the Christ of the Bible they have ruled out as a factor in the affairs of life. They have ignored him in their own calculations as to earth and time and purpose and so forth. And so as a result of having ruled out the Christ, The devil has substituted a Messiah who seems to mankind at this point far more exciting than the Messiah, the deliverer, the Savior that has been revealed in the Word of God. The world today, in fact, is hastening quickly in that very direction. The direction of the excluding of God and of his Christ from the affairs of life. Men are, 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 are simply leaving the Lord out of their calculations, as I've said, of the affairs of life. And as a result, little thing, if any at all, seems to make any kind of sense. You and I, and I think if you think you know this, we are living in an age of terrible frustration and confusion. Everywhere from the White House down to the lowest lowest man on the political totem pole. To every John and Sally who walks the streets of our country and of our world, we are living in a mass of confusion. And daily we seem to be getting ourselves more and more into a hole and into a well that there's no way to climb out of. And I want to remind you again, it is simply because man has excluded God and excluded his Christ from their thinking and from their life and from their calculations. In other words, Jesus must be in the center of a man's life individually, collectively, domestically, internationally. Jesus must be in his rightful place or things just don't seem to make sense. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. For centuries on this earth, men believed that the earth, this planet earth, was the center of the universe. They believed that all of the planets and everything else in our system revolved around this planet earth. Uh, There were those uh, who followed the teachings of the Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Ptolemy who indeed were saying to men and women, this earth, this world is the center of it all. 
And thus they came up with many ingenious theories, trying to somehow uh, uh, give an answer to the questions and queries of men. For example, they tried to explain the seeming retrograde of the planet Mars. They were up a stump as far as being able to explain why there is the change from night to day and day to night. And so they were just in, a, in a, a terrible muddle and a puddle of awful confusion. Astronomy was confused with all of the inconsistencies to what was being advanced as far as the theory the earth was the center of the universe. Men simply did not have the key. They did not have the key for they ignored the centrality of the sun. And thus there came along as a result two fellows, one by the name of Nicholas Copernicus, whose name you'll remember as a student in school, Johannes Kepler, and these two men came along and they advanced the, tr- the theory and the fact that not the earth was the center of the universe, but rather the sun was the central feature of our solar system. And that all of the planets revolved around the sun. Now, when they came to receive that very understanding, things began to fall in place. The seeming retrograde of the planet Mars, the change from night to day and day to night, all of these things seem to have an answer as they recognize now that that star, the sun, was the center around which the planets revolved. And so it is in life. When men fail to put the sun, the S-O-N, the Son of God in the central place in their life, life becomes a muddle of confusion and frustration and you hear all kind of ingenious, invented theories to try to explain why things are like they are today. Somebody says our problem is education. If we can educate everybody, we've solved all of our problems. Solomon said much learning just increases more trouble. And I'm not advocating that you stay ignorant. I'm just simply saying that that is not the answer. That is not the answer. In other words, the answer to the problems of this confused world is not in technology. If that had been the case, God would have sent a scientist instead of a savior. The problem of the world is not the lack of education. If that had been the problem, God would have sent an educator. If it had been a problem of economics, and that's what most people are saying, that's our problem. The problem is money. If it had been economics, the Lord would have, send, uh, would have sent an economist. But man's problem was a problem of sin. He had set God aside in his life, enthroned himself, and man's problem is a sinner. The only solution to that problem is a Savior who is Jesus Christ the Lord. So then, the world, when, the world, when the world in Copernicus' day accept the theory and the truth that the sun is the central place, indeed, they begin to understand. So it is, as we said, with the, this matter of, uh, of uh, life itself. Men today have substituted everything for the Savior. Men today have substituted accidents and freakish accidents and explosions in distant past to try to explain the very reality and the existence of our world, of our solar system, of our universe. 
In other words, they're just leaving it to an accidental con- uh, uh, collocation of atoms. They have bumped heads and somehow all of this has come about as some kind of freakish accident. My friend, it takes a lot of faith or ignorance, one, to believe that. Not only then, but men have substituted a grandiose United Nations for the Prince of Peace. I appreciate all the world leaders trying to do to bring peace, but I've got news for you, whether you realize this or not, this world will never have peace brought about by United Nations or a United anything else. Permanent peace can only come from the person of the Prince of Peace, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. So as a result of all these substitutions and failures to put Christ the Lord in the central place and personal life, in business life, in the home front, in the church, and the world, we have got a mass of chaos and confusion everywhere. No wonder then John turns our eyes in chapter 10 at verse 1 through 3 upon the Lord Jesus. And then at verse 4 in chapter 10, I didn't even spend that long here, but in verse 4 through 11, John, our eyes are turned on John. Notice back in chapter 10, there are four great moving utterances here. Notice down in verse number 4, the voice says, uh, one of the voices, seven thunder says, write them not. In other words, John hears these voices and the Lord said, don't you write that down. He started to write it. In other words, God is simply saying uh, he is not going to reveal every detail of his plan of the present. There are some things that if God were to try to explain to you and me, we don't have enough capacity and capability to even understand it to start with. So what our Lord is saying is simply this, you need to trust me, you need to accept and believe me, you need to trust my wisdom and my knowledge about the affairs of life. Not only that, but notice verse 9 through 10 of chapter 10, or, or verse number 6 it is. You hear, here's that second voice, the voice of the angel, the mighty angel who announced. Here's the utterance. That time, there should be time no longer. And we said simply what the Lord is saying here in the word time, chronos. He is simply saying there is not going to be any more delay. The Lord in mercy and love has delayed his judgment upon sinful, wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting men. And now the mighty angel says that there will be no more delay. I want to tell you, in mercy, God delays his judgment on the lives of men. But you remember this, there is a time when God will say, it is enough. I have delayed in dealing with you long enough. And listen up, child of God, I believe that time comes in your life and mine. We insist on our own way. We walk contrary to God. And I believe there comes a time when God says, I've delayed the chastening long enough. I remember as a child growing up, sometimes I'd, you know, I always tried to play pretty close to the edge as far as mother and dad's rules were concerned. And sometimes I'd step across. Dad is very patient. I'd maybe do it one time, two times, and I'd think, boy, I've gotten away with it now. But but about the third or fourth time I encroached on that rule of family, I, I experienced the board of education being applied to the seat of knowledge. But he made a patriot out of me in a hurry. He applied the stripes and I saw the stars. In other words, I learned that I was not going to get by with a continuous encroachment upon the rules of family that were laid down by my father. And so then John uh, hears this mighty angel, verse 9 and 10. There is the voice concerning the little book. And the angel said, take it and eat it. And John ate it and he said, it was sweet to my mouth but bitter to my belly. 
And I think what John is simply revealing here is that victory is coming, but there is a terrible price to pay for that victory. It is good news when we say, oh, yes, victory is coming, but when we realize what a price, what a price. And I believe if we were to ever engage in war in the Middle East with Mr. Mr. Hussein, I believe there would be victory. And that's a good feeling for an American and for other united groups of nations that are standing against this aggression. But I want to tell you, though victory is a sound that is sweet, the price that is paid is very bitter. The loss of hundreds and thousands and thousands of lives that no doubt would be lost if such a conflagration occurred this very day in the Middle East, both on our side and the side of the Iraqis. There would be a tragic loss of life. And yet victory is a sweet sound, but there is bitterness in it. And that's what John saw here. Verse number seven of the same 10th chapter, the seventh angel sounded and said, the mystery of God should be finished. What is that mystery of God? I tried to show you that it was that mystery of God's allowing Satan and man to have his way. A mystery that God had let man do that. A mystery that God would let Satan run rampant seemingly in our earth today. Men who defy God, curse God, slam God, curse God, and yet how it is that God permits that. I'm going to tell you, he may in mercy permit men to walk under their sin now, but as I said a moment ago, there's a line that is drawn. And the Lord is saying here through this angel in verse number seven of chapter 10, the mystery of God should be finished, that is fulfilled or concluded, that mystery of our God let Satan and man too go on his way. But there's a stopping point. And that's what he's saying here. But notice in chapter 11 now, <laughs> are you still with me? Y'all still with me? Not yet. All right, good. Three nodded one way 10 minutes ago, and that's all. I want you to come up. Okay, look, verse 1 through 13 of chapter 11. I'm going to help you if I can. All right, look, the coming of the messengers. We looked at that last Sunday, the coming of the messengers. There are three things that I, I tried to show you. Verse 1 through 5, you saw the mandate of those messengers. The mandate was that they now, that the, the mandate given rather was uh, to measure the temple. To measure the temple. You remember that? Now, Lord, listen to me. Listen up now. It's some current. Do you realize that there is going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem? And it will be rebuilt on the temple mount that now exists, the most sacred place. Do you realize this past week, the things that the Arabs said incited them to riot on that most holy place? when they stoned those men who were praying at the Western Wailing Wall, they said, had heard that some Jews were coming to lay the cornerstone of the temple. Now Israel said, we deny that. And though there are many Orthodox Jews in Israel and Jerusalem who want to rebuild the temple, and listen, money upon top of money, thousands, millions of dollars have already been poured in from not only Israel and the Jews of Israel, but around this world of ours. The dream, the hope, the ambition, the, hope, the desire of an Orthodox Jew is the rebuilding of that temple. And my friend, it's going to happen. And the Lord said right here through his message, you measure the temple. But he said, leave out the court of the Gentiles. Why? 
Because he said for 42 months, Jerusalem is going to be trodden down to the Gentiles. 42 months. That's 1,260 days. That happens to be three and one half years, which is the latter half of the seven-year period of tribulation. Hey, listen, isn't it amazing when you begin to see what God's doing and what's happening in our world? All of these things, folks, are right upon us. Never before in any generation's history other than this generation in which you and I now live and breathe have we heard talk about a rebuilding of a temple. We have heard the talk and have actually seen the reformation of a nation known as Israel since 1948. All of the things that are taking place, folks, listen to me, we are living in exciting days that are nearing the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, you're setting a date? No, sir, I don't know. But I'm going to tell you from every indication, we're not far, far from it. And yet when you see these things begin to happen, we know that the ultimate thing is going to happen when the Lord comes a second time and places feet on the mount. But seven years before that, the Bible teaches that the child of God who's saved, the born-again Christian, is going to be snatched off of this planet Earth in that moment that we call the rapture. And that's seven years before these things begin to transpire. Look how they're already set up. I don't have time to deal with this, but I want to say it lest I run out of time and forget it. Saddam Hussein, who lives in, of course, his country is Iraq, one of his great ambitions was to rebuild the city of Babylon. Now, if you know your Bible, you read a lot about Babylon in the book of Revelation. Have you read that recently? Mr. Saddam, Saddam Hussein believes he is Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. I think he needs to read what happened to old Nebi. The whole truth is, what I'm trying to get you to see, folks, is that all of these things are beginning to shape up. They're beginning to take shape. Already in this year, 1990, in the, uh, just a little more than two years from 1992, the European common market intends to be a powerful force. There are debts and dates that have been set by such movements as the New Age movement, and they declare by the year 2000, they will have completed their quest of creating a one-world political system, a one-world religious system, a one-world unity. Here we are in 1990. Now, I'm going to tell you, folks, it's time we wake up in this country and in this church to realize that we don't have long to do what we must do in getting the gospel to men and women. We need to awaken. And so, I didn't mean to spend that long there, but the seventh angel, the mystery, God said, is, well, the mandate, measure the temple, the witnesses who would come would witness for the same period of time for 42 months or three and a half years. Notice verse 7 through 10, the martyrdom of these messengers. The Antichrist, or who is known as the beast in the Revelation, prevails upon these two powerful witnesses. We have said either they could be Elijah and Moses or Elijah and Enoch. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one I prefer because I really do not know. The scripture did not say who they were. I just told you last Sunday, there are some reasons to believe in one direction or the other. But here's what I want you to understand. These witnesses will stand in defiance of the Antichrist and his system. They will become a thorn in the flesh of international cooperation. 
They will witness at every, listen, the, the world try to destroy them and those who try to hurt them, the Bible said fire proceeds from their mouth, destroys those who would endeavor to hurt them. And they will witness until that period of time God said, I want you to witness and then the Antichrist will prevail, make, well, will kill them and they will lie dead in the streets of Jerusalem. I'm talking about Jerusalem on this earth. Will lie there for three and a half days while their bodies decay. What is that that uh, sets in? Mortis, something I've forgotten anyway. What is it? Rigor mortis. Just sets in. Here these fellows are. Can you imagine flies swarming around? And the Bible said the peoples, the nations of the world will see them. That could not have happened until, until Telstar. And through satellite systems, television, men all over this world are going to see those cantankerous, obnoxious, fundamental, Bible-believing fellows who stand up for God as his chosen witnesses. When they are killed, they lie dead in the street for three and a half days and people have a satanic Christmas. The passage tells us that men exchange gifts, one among, uh, among themselves. They have a party. But as I said last Sunday, it's the shindiggers' last shenanigan. They've had their party for the last go-round. And now, as they watch that scene, those bodies begin to take on a rosy hue. The pale color of death passes away. Their cheeks become rosy. Their limbs begin to move. And people are frightened and they run away and they come back again to assemble to see what takes place. And these two men arise and are raptured out into the heavens in a cloud. All the world sees it. But watch that. You say, surely the world repent. They're amazed, but they don't repent. They are smitten to the knowledge that there is a God. This is God's doing, but they do not repent. And we are people right here in Hammersham County and maybe somebody right here in this audience. You recognize God. You know that God's done a work, but there's never been any true repentance in your heart. Never a change of heart. Never an experience of conversion. Never been born again. And yet men can recognize the work of God and still not be right in their hearts with God. Well, I've said all that to say this. We come in verse 14 through 19, the crowning of the Messiah. I promise you I'm going to deal 10 minutes with this and we're through. So you hang on tight, buckle your seatbelt, I'm going to run in a hurry. The crowning of the Messiah. Now the last of the seven trumpets are about to sound, which will bring literally the outpouring of the vials of the wrath of God. Remember, we have three sets of judgment acts. The breaking of the seals, the sounding, the break of the seven seals, the sounding of seven trumpets, the pouring out of seven bowls of the wrath of God. That's the way John describes them now. But first, before that happens, John gives us through the Holy Spirit a glimpse of the crowning in heaven of God's rightful king. How fitting the number of that choir sung this morning. Crowning him king. Now watch carefully. Here is the crowning of King Jesus. Go back to the Old Testament a minute. David was anointed king three times. First, as a mere youth. Secondly, at Hebron over Judah. Thirdly, over all Israel. So our Savior. Watch what I mean by that. Back in chapter 5 of Revelation, he has given the title deed to this earth. 
the title deed, the rightful owner of this earth. Look, if you will, you'll find here in this passage, he is acknowledged as earth's rightful ruler and king. And then if you'll skip on over to chapter 19, you'll see that he comes to earth as king of kings and lord of lords and with many crowns upon his head. Now when the news that has occurred in heaven that he is crowned king is released on this earth, the reaction of the earth people is one of anger. Can you imagine? The earth reacts in anger. And the next two chapters, by the way, chapter 12 and 13, deals with what we'll call the devil's desire and the, and the following chaos that comes as a result of the devil's desire. We'll look at that as soon as we can. Verse 18 here says, and the nations were angry. Now I want you to jot this reference down and read this when you get home. Please do it. Write down Psalm 2, verse 1 through 6. You'll find that it deals with a heathen raging, and I imagine in a vain thing, how they're saying, let's throw off his bands. In other words, we're talking about they want to exclude God, leave God out, push him out altogether. Now, what happens in heaven, this crowning of the Savior as rightful king, what happens in heaven and what happens on earth, they stand before us in stark contrast. For example, there is judgment on earth, but there's jubilation in heaven. There is rage on earth, but there's rejoicing in heaven. There is cursing on earth, but there's crowning in heaven. There is woe on earth, but there is worship in heaven. You'll see it in these verses. Now, I want you to notice two particular things, and I'll just lay these out to you in verse 14 through 19, the remainder of this chapter 11. First, in verse 14 and 15, the third woe on earth is introduced. At verse number 16 through 19, notice the thankful worship in heaven. Now, you're going to have to think with me, folks. This don't come on a silver platter. You have to use your coconut. That's the reason the Lord gave you one. So uh, kind of wind it up. Now, watch carefully. The third woe on this earth. Now, the, the events that fall under, watch this. The events that fall under what is described as the third woe. All those events go all the way through chapter 15. And at chapter 16, verse 1, you have the beginning of the pouring out of the bowls of the wrath of God. That is, the more intense, the more severe, the more horrible judgments of God. So, the woes have been, there are three of them as we've seen. There's a first woe, a second woe, and I won't take time to deal with those things. Other than to simply say, the seventh trumpet sounds here in our passage, and it introduces and includes the seven bold judgments of the wrath of God, as I said, that are talked about in chapter 16. Now, here in the verses that are before us, one question is forever settled. And that is the sovereign right of God to rule. 
the question of sovereignty is settled. Who is the rightful ruler? And you remember when we started this study, I brought you one message in particular entitled, Who Owns This World Anyhow? Who is the rightful owner? And now watch. The crowning of the king. Notice what is said here. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God, of our Lord, and of his Christ. Literally, the kingdom of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord. In other words, in our rendering in this verse, in our English version, it is revealed as kingdoms, plural. But it's literally kingdom singular. In other words, it is the suggestion of a unified kingdom, a one kingdom. Now watch this. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Do you realize this, folks? This is what Satan has been after and all about from the, for centuries. In other words, his desire and his purpose and plan is to unite the world into one single kingdom. I want to say that again. I hope you got this. And you need to realize the purpose of Satan for centuries has been to unite the world in, a, in one single kingdom. If you please, a one world. You hear anything about that these days? A one-world order, a one-world system, a one-world currency. You hear it practically every day if you got your ears open. And I want to tell you something. The majority of the leaders of our nation are pressing for a one-world government. Everything you get in this entertainment world, from every facet of even the religious world, pushing for a one-world system. Now, the devil's made me an attempt, but he failed. You go way back to Genesis chapter 11, and you'll find his first attempt. When there was the construction of what is known as the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, or Babylon. The word means confusion. That attempt was an organized rebellion that was led by a man named Nimrod, whose design was to build a world society, get this, from which God was excluded. Now don't forget that. That's the very first attempt to build a world society. Everybody united? One world political system represented by the city. A one world religious system represented by the tower. And that's what the Tower of Babel is all about. It was a religious shrine, a place that was designed for worship of the heavens. And so the design was, was, uh, was uh, led by Nimrod. In other words, man united without the God of the Bible was the form that the first apostasy took. And it will be the form the last apostasy will take. And you see it right now before your very eyes, shaping up, moving together. For decades, you have heard religion cry, ecumenism. 
an ecumenical church. You know what that means? That means everybody get together under one roof. No matter what you, and listen, there, there are office building now that house all the major religions of this world. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity, so-called Christianity, Judaism, one world, one world religion. And it's fast moving in that direction. The movement then is clearly manifesting itself today. It is a satanically inspired movement. And there are many people who are involved in this movement of Satan taught a one world, religious system a one world, political system, and they're involved in it often ignorantly. But there are millions who follow it. I mean in teeming millions, folks. I'm not talking about a little nest over here, a little cell over here that you never hear about, and yet it's going around. Most Christians, we don't even know what's taking place. For example, Marxist communism, which engulfs over half of the world, still preaches atheism. Exclude God. And I want to tell you, with all the overtures that communism is making today, don't you be fooled. That old snake may have changed its color, but it's still at heart the same philosophy and ideology. Exclude God. Not of that, but Islam, which is very, we're familiar with today as a result of the Middle East. But Islam, I want to tell you something. Do you realize there are millions of followers of Islam here in America? I mean all over this country. Temple in Atlanta. People all over this country, I was up in Virginia, there's a temple, a mosque just out of uh, Christiansburg. They came in there to build that mosque, and uh, I think it fell through. It's owned by some other group now, but there are multiplied hundreds of people uh, following it to Islam. And Islam advocates a God, Allah, Allah, who though they call him God, is contrary to the God of the Bible. Not only that, but Hinduism prevailing in American societies, and you would be shocked if you were to go in secular universities and colleges and hear the propaganda of Hinduism. Yoga, transcendental meditation, uh, meditative arts, all of this kind of junk. And yet there are many people, even Christian people, oh, anything wrong with that. The whole story is a devil's blind in half of the country. And yet what Hinduism is doing is excluding of God. They proclaim a cosmic force. A cosmic force and they declare the need for spirit guides. You hear people like Shirley MacLaine, Hollywood actresses. You hear people talk about they've been in communion with a certain guide. Some, and they give them all kind of name. Matria, just a hundred, I'll deal with that a little time later. But nonetheless, spirit guides, you know what that is? Demonism, that's what it is. Not only that, we've got humanism that teaches that man is God. Exclude God. I'm going to give you this, and I, I can't even finish what I've started out, but I feel like I need to give this because some of you are not going to be back tonight. But I want you to be aware of something. We are involved today in what is known as a New Age movement. Now, I do not have time to deal in detail this, but I just want to give you one or two of their points from their master plan, 13 points in their master plan, and this is what they're attempting to do. And I'm talking about a movement that is absolutely sweeping this country and this world. 
in their 13-point master plan, and by the way, their plan is publicly expressed by its own leadership. Point number one, the principal aim of the plan is to establish a one-world, new age religion, and a one-world political and social order. Point number five, world peace, love, and unity will be the rallying cries of the new age world religion. Now the Bible warned us and said, watch it, when they holler peace, peace, don't be took, taken in by that. Well, a lot of people talk about love, love, let's uni, unify. All that sounds good to the, to the person who knows the scripture. Number eight point, listen to this. Christianity and all other religions, Christianity and all other religions are to become integral parts of the new age world religion. In other words, let's get them all together. Everybody in the, under the same roof, a one world religion. Point number nine, listen to this. Christian principles must be discredited and abandoned. The principles of Bible-believing truth are to be abandoned and discredited. And you have people on the religious front now who do that, and many of them maybe do it knowingly, others do not. Again, you've got point number 13, and I read this to you, or point number 7. The New Age leaders and believers will spread this apostasy that Jesus is neither God nor Christ. And finally, I'll read this, the 13th point. Christians who resist the plan will be dealt with, if necessary, they will be exterminated and the world purified. Now, whether you know it or not, folks, there's a movement in this world right now that a delight and thrill and probably send gifts and have parties if Bible-believing, fundamental, born-again Christians like you were out of the way. We are living in a hostile world, and that hostility is seen on every front. The entertainment world, the stuff you view on television is primarily and glossed over with humanistic philosophy and New Age movement philosophy. And yet many a person in this country being brainwashed little by little. You need to know what the Word of God says. You need to understand what's taking place and what's happening in this country. It would not surprise me if the Lord delays His coming that this church and others like this church who stand for the Word of God without apology, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be the target of some terrible attacks and onslaughts. And you have a preacher standing in this pulpit who may wind up in jail because I simply try to preach the principles of the Word of God. But I'm determined by the grace of God to stand true to our blessed Lord come hell or high water. God help us to do it. Let's stand for prayer.